0: You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV.
1: Hi, this is Robert Wright. One thing I like about the conversations I have here on The Wright Show is that they help me think and write. They've informed the books and many of the articles I've written over the past 15 years. Now, lately, most of my writing has been for my newsletter, the Non-Zero Newsletter. It covers the kinds of topics you see on the show, Politics, foreign policy, psychology, philosophy, spirituality, how to avoid the apocalypse, things like that. So if you enjoy the right show, chances are pretty good that you'll enjoy the newsletter. It's free, and all you have to do to get it is go to nonzero.org and sign up. So I suggest that you hit pause, go sign up, and then hit play. Thanks. Hi, Sharon. Hi, Bob. How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well, all things considered. I'm so glad I'm going to get to talk to you. Um, we're old friends, for one thing, uh, but also you've got a new book out. It's uh, latest in a series of real books. Real, <laughs> real books. Um, you've written a book called Real Happiness. You've written a book called Real Love. And this book is called Real Change. That's right. I I somehow,
0: I got on the real chain, on the real train. I don't know how that happened. And people are teasing me
1: like, maybe your next book is real life. I don't know. Or you could fool them and just go with a series of fake books. (laughs) That's right. Fake change. (laughs) Fake love, fake happiness. Uh, we're all, actually we're all pretty good at fake happiness already. You don't need to write that one. Well, anyway, let me introduce this. Uh, a little further, I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Sharon Salzberg, very well known in the kind of American Buddhist community. Uh, you co-founded a very important institution, the Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Massachusetts, which I would say, correct me if I'm wrong, is... Um, as responsible as any institution for bringing mindfulness meditation to the attention of the American public. Is that fair? I mean, there had been waves of Buddhism. You started the the, uh, IMS in the early 70s, I think. There had been these waves of Buddhism, a couple of them, but the first was kind of Zen in California, then Tibetan in Colorado. Neither of those is so associated with mindfulness per se as the kind of, Theravada and specifically Vipassana uh, tradition that you brought in?
0: Yeah, I, I think that's fair to say. We started IMS in 1976. Okay. We moved in on Valentine's Day of 76, and Joseph Goldstein and I, who had met in India, um, had been back uh, for a couple of years teaching. Jack Cornfield was having a parallel life in Thailand while we were in India, and mm-hmm. he was also back. And the three of us and some other friends, we just teach in these different cohorts as an invitation came in and somebody suggested to us, why don't you start a center? So we were, you know, young and naive. I was twenty three years old. I'm not even sure I knew what a mortgage was in those days. And we said, sure. And we, in fact we could not get a mortgage. We had a we had three friends who went to the bank and personally got out loans so that we can open up. So Is that right? Couldn't yeah. get a mortgage. Couldn't get a mortgage.
1: Ah uh-huh. They were, they were bad judges of, of potential, (laughs) I would say. Uh, the, uh, so, so you had been to India at a very young age. I think you were, what, 18 or something? 18, yeah. 18 when you went to India. Um, as one did in those days, I guess, if one was in a certain, looking for a certain kind of thing. One thing I wanted to ask you is, um, you know, your book is, is, is called Real Change. The subtitle is Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves and the world, I I think some people think of meditators as people aren't really out to change the world. And in fact, as people who are using meditation, to kind of insulate themselves from the world, in some sense. Um, And I think that maybe can be a a temptation. It could, I guess it could be used that way. But what I wanted to start out by asking is, what was the spirit of the times in the 70s? I mean, I mean, there, there, there was very much Generally speaking, a sense that it was time to change the world. If you, you would have been in India in the early 70s, is that right? Yeah, or... I left in 1970. Okay, so yeah, that's like, you know, hippie city and everyone wants to change the world. Was the, was the idea kind of explicitly that if you were getting into this, if you were going east to seek wisdom and Uh, learn about meditation and contemplative traditions, that that was part of transforming the world. Well, first, I just want to
0: say that I was actually at Woodstock. If we're talking about hippies, <laughs> I have some authenticity
1: that I'm going to lay claim to. So that's impressive. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, wait, I, let me wait. Let me ask a Woodstock question. Is okay, it, is it true that it looks better in retrospect than it felt at the time? I mean, there was a lot of rain and stuff, right? Oh, yeah, and, we were all sleeping in mud, you know, yeah. in, in the pouring rain. But I
0: mean, there were. I mean, it was incredible, of course, and, and the fact that there were people feeding us and taking care of us and mm-hmm. was, I think, a model for, you know, what a lot of people were longing for. I don't think that there was necessarily that um, big a drive to change the world and the people who went east. There was actually sort of a split uh, between, like in my college years, uh, you know, between the sort of political activists and the people who were seeking meditation and so on. And I'd say that I, I'm probably a good example of somebody who was in so much personal pain uh, just from my childhood and things like that, that I wasn't really thinking that much about other people, you know, or, or the world. And and I think when you really reflect on it, you know, I had to go to India to find teachings because what I was interested in was the real practical, direct how to stuff. Mm-hmm. And, I was going to college in Buffalo, New York. I looked around Buffalo, did not see it anywhere. Devised this independent study program uh, for the university so I could go to India. And I had never even been to California when I went to India. You know, so the the intensity of the motivation for most people, unless you were just like a wild adventurer, you know, um, you really, you had to have intense motivation to find it. And to be able to practice it. And so uh, almost by definition, those were not casual seekers or people who even had a great thirst to understand life, you know, because it was so hard to find. I, I think that uh, probably personal suffering really guided many, many of us. And for me, it was only later that some of those clouds cleared, you know, and I felt freer
1: mm-hmm. uh, as
0: a person that. Uh, I think one of the odd consequences of meditation, um, odd because it doesn't make sense on the face of it, you know, it, is that you have a tremendous developing sense of connection to others. Mm-hmm. You know, it looks odd because you may be all alone. You may have your eyes closed. It looks like the most shut off thing you can imagine, but it actually functions to reinforce that sense of connection. So for me, it was it was later that that actually
1: developed. Okay. Now you – uh so, so you referred to your own suffering. So your mother had died at an, when you were very young, I think, and then your father had mental health problems. Is that
0: – Yeah. My father had left when I was four when they got divorced, and I was okay. living with my mother. She died when I was nine, and then I was living with my father's parents, and he came back briefly when I was 11 and then just sort of spun off into the mental health system for the rest of his life. So – uh and even more – uh, kind of corrosive in a way was the fact that, like many family systems, mine was one where this was never spoken about. Hmm. And so I went to college at the age of sixteen, and uh, only then began putting some of the pieces together. You know that oh, you know maybe that wasn't an accidental overdose that sent him into the psychiatric hospital. That doesn't make sense. It was you know something else, and uh, and it was really actually honestly, in the Asian philosophy course in my sophomore year in college when I was hearing about the Buddhist teaching and, and the um, inclusion of suffering mm-hmm. as an inevitable and natural part of life. That was, I think, the first moment in my life I felt like I belong. I'm not so weird and different. You know, this is a part of life.
1: Mm-hmm. And that was before you went to India.
0: Yeah, that was why I went to India. Uh-huh. You know, because I, I heard this and... Uh, And I heard that there were these things you could do, these methods you could use called meditation, and that you could be a lot happier. And and I look at that moment so many times, like, why wasn't I satisfied with reading a few more books or, you know, saying, maybe I'll go to grad school, you know, Mm -hmm. and and study it there. It was like,
1: I have to learn how to do this. So you went to India. And did you have... um a single kind of transformative moment that you remember from, uh, India where, where you just felt like, okay, this is, I, I found what I need or, and, and also how arduous was it along the way? I assume you didn't just <laughs> sit down and find magic the first time.
0: No, I mean, even getting there was arduous so and, you know, in those days, so many of us went overland and. Somebody asked me the other day something about flying into Delhi and I said, No, 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 no. <laughs> like you know, he flew into Europe and took a train and a series of buses huh. and trains and huh. who knows what, you know, to get to India. And uh and were you with people? Did you
1: did you I was know with people? a few
0: friends, yeah. Uh-huh. I was with a few friends. And uh we didn't really quite know where to go. That was you know, that was a little difficult, but um also interesting. And uh because I had this great passion for like the how-to. I wasn't really interested in uh, starting somewhere else, you know and getting there eventually. So that took a while to find. And I finally did in the context of this intensive 10-day retreat that SN Golanka was teaching in Gaya, India, and that began January 7, 1971. So um, and you and I had spoken you know privately a little bit about Ramdas. Ramdas was there as a student. Okay. At that retreat. Now he uh, he passed Dose away.
1: Uh, Ram Dass passed away last year. Is that right? This this year. Yeah. It was it was early yeah. this year. Okay. Um, and he's I I guess well he's well known for writing Be Here Now. Right for for people mm-hmm. who don't know his various other exploits. Um, and so you met Joseph as well. Mm Hmm. And who co-founded IMS with you and, and was Jack Cornfield there or was that later?
0: No, Jack was in Thailand. I mean, he, he was doing his,
1: his life in Thailand when we were in India. I see. Okay. So your first retreat was a Goenka retreat. We, mm-hmm. we can say for, uh, people who aren't, don't recognize the name, Goenka, that is one tradition of kind of mindfulness meditation, uh, that emphasizes Uh, well, all mindfulness meditation ultimately emphasizes paying attention to the body. But as far as kind of the first thing you focus on, Goenka emphasizes these kind of body scans, right? Thinking about different parts of your body. Uh, At IMS, you're more likely to, to maybe hear initially an emphasis on the breath. They both lead to each other uh potentially and 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 it can be all the same in the end but that's one distinctive thing about him and there's still these Goenka retreat centers around the world where they show mm-hmm. video videos of Goenka mm-hmm. they they're they're pretty spartan uh i i think as a rule um but they've done uh you know they've done a lot of good in the world so that's interesting he was a teacher of Joseph's he was a teacher of yours goenka himself
0: yeah 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 uh, mm-hmm. goenka had just left burma um just a little bit before that time Joseph's primary teacher was somebody else who was there, this man named Menindra. Mm. But um, his courses were like these these, uh, tremendous immersion experiences where – and you see the model of it, you know, at at IMS, at a retreat center.
1: Right. Like that. No, that's where I became a a believer uh, in 2003 at at a retreat at IMS. So did you – was your first retreat uh, – was there a big? Was that transformative for you? the The first Goenkā retreat. I would say the first sitting of that retreat
0: was was a moment um, for me where there was no looking back from that. I mean, wow. uh, there was rough going after that. You know, I had a lot of physical pain. I mean, there was no there were no chairs, there were no zafus, and mm. um, and I had a lot of emotional pain because he, after all, here I was. Guided by seeking to resolve this pain, and that meant looking at it, you know, mm-hmm. or acknowledging it, uh, which was a big shock to me. And I was extremely self-judgmental. So, despite all these recommendations to have equanimity and be kind to yourself, it like didn't matter. Uh, but from the beginning, I just, I just felt there's truth here. There's something here that is so essentially true, and
1: it will help me. That I never looked back from that. Okay, so before we move on to the book, maybe we could talk a little more for people who haven't meditated, maybe about the kind of thing you might feel on a, on a retreat. I mean, I mean, how was your relationship to your suffering changed, or or your relationship to anything you were feeling? What what's different about uh, about experiencing it through meditation?
0: Well, uh, from that time, I really saw meditation as a skills training in a variety of different skills. One was to get a little more centered, you know, just those moments when you can simply say, be with the breath. And all this other stuff may be going on, thoughts and chaos and uh, fears and anxiety, whatever it is, but you're not sucked into it. Mm -hmm. You're also not rejecting it. There's just this kind of peace right in that moment, just feeling your breath, sort of watching the show. And uh, it was... It was uh, life changing for me to have that, and these are just moments. Mm-hmm. You know, it may not be sustained for like seven hours or even seven minutes, but uh, it makes a big difference. And then there's actual training and being with, say, painful feeling, emotional feeling, as well as physical pain, without adding on to them the things we normally do, like shame and uh, a sense of futility at not having been able to control or projection into the future, like what's it going to feel like tomorrow? Mm-hmm. What's it going to feel like next week? Um, so we're left more with the actual experience as it is. And that gives us the chance to look more deeply into anything. You know, if it's physical pain, we see, oh, look at that. It's actually coming and going. It's an alive system that's always changing. If it's emotional pain, first of all, we call it pain rather than "oh God, I'm a horrible person" because I'm angry. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we see the painful nature of certain feelings, and we learn a different relationship to them. And so, that was really wonderful. And then, you know, there's actually, and I'm relying on this a lot these days. You know, it's not just long ago. Um, there's an emphasis on being able to take in the joy, actually be able to experience the. Wonderment or delightful moments instead of being so distracted or clinging so desperately to them that, you know, uh-huh. we don't even enjoy them. We just need them to stay uh-huh. somehow. And so it, it was all hugely life-changing in a very practical way.
1: Okay. So now let's talk about the current historical moment a little. I should say uh, we're taping this a little bit before this will run. In fact, right now I don't think your book has actually been formally published published right it's coming out september 1st september 1st okay so fairly soon but um so uh, things could change uh between now and whenever people see or hear this but of course there is a pandemic uh there are politically very unsettled times uh has all this changed the way, uh, you relate to your, your students and, and people who come to you for guidance? I mean, are, are you, are you sensing more suffering, a different kind of suffering or, or different kinds of questions?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, and that's been true even since before the pandemic. Um, I think, uh, and it's, it's been highlighted really in the pandemic a lot because of physical isolation for those who've been able to physically isolate mm-hmm. and aren't going out to work every day. And I have a fair number of students who are going out to work every day, um, you know, and facing a, a different kind of reality too. But um, some of it has to do with um, really seeking some respite, you know, people just want to break from their minds, like from incessant anger from, from uh Chronic frustration, and I think we need we need to know how to do that. And even before the pandemic, there was uh, what people described as an epidemic of loneliness.
1: Hmm.
0: You know, and uh, and I think people have had to face that a lot, uh, obviously in an increasing fashion. And then you know, since the pandemic, like I turned in the book before the pandemic hit, and then a friend was reading it in order to create an excerpt and he said he was reading the examples that I used in the book and he thought, That's what made you anxious? Wait till you see what's coming down the pike, you know. And so then I went to the publisher and I said, Well, could I write a new preface? You know, to somehow kinda of land it and they said yes. So so I did. So the the preface is post pandemic pre protest. So I mean, I couldn't just keep going back. Yeah,
1: know, so. yeah, no. I, I, I think you'd have to keep doing that every six weeks. In any event, yeah, at some yeah. point, you just got to draw the line. So far as I can tell, things are going to get uh, stranger and stranger. Yeah. A while so when you when you um when you refer to anger, um, you're referring to anger at the political situation, or I think that's that's largely what people were describing. Now, you know, um.
0: Some things are very specific. I've taught, say, groups of ambulance drivers or because I work a lot with caregivers, so to speak, or Mm -hmm. first responders, people who are really on the front lines of suffering. So I was going to do this program for EMT people and ambulance drivers and so on. And so I asked the organizer, what do you think is really up for them? What would be helpful? And she said, you know, they see people walking around without masks and they're so angry. Mm. And I thought, well, yeah, you know, like, you know, if I were an ambulance driver and, and I saw people walking around without masks, they think 10 more days, you know, mm-hmm. you could be in my hands and my life could be in your hands, you know, and so, um, everything is like so intensified,
1: I think, yeah. in, in a lot of ways. Um, I want to get, I want to get back to anger, but first I want to ask, um, the thing, uh, I mentioned earlier about a stereotype about meditation being that it really seals you off yeah. from the world, eliminates the need to think about changing the world. I mean, first of all, uh, is it fair to say that a lot of people think of meditation that way? And also, isn't it, isn't it fair to say that that can happen or could happen? People can use meditation uh as a way to kind of, I don't know if buffer is the right word but to um you know try to make I mean the, the the whole idea certainly is to some extent or part of the idea is to some extent to um make your own well-being less dependent on external circumstances mm-hmm. that's absolutely mm-hmm. a big a big part of it mm-hmm. um that doesn't mean you have to quit caring about the external circumstances the yeah. right
0: yeah yeah, no, I think that's a very important point. You don't end up being passive. And I mean, that's, that's sort of the image, you know, that you're going to get sort of stupefied and, you know, uh, well, it's the same thing people have about gratitude. You know, it's the same issue. Like you're going to be grateful for these crumbs that some oppressive system is going to be throwing at you and you're just going to be in this, you know, la la land. And it's not like that. I think at the very least, if you're practicing in a way that, um, is appropriate, you know, you're not like avoiding something that's coming up that's difficult or something like that, um, you will find that you're changed and the, the sphere may be your family. It may be an encounter with a service person We think you actually take the time to thank them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I've probably had, I don't know, thousands of students through the years say to me, you know, I was doing this meditation practice and uh, I was out on the street and some guy came up and asked me for a dollar and I gave him a dollar because that's my practice. And But it's the first time I ever looked that person in the eye and realized Mm -hmm. that was a human being. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that happens. I think what does not happen necessarily in that situation is that one doesn't go on to ponder, I wonder what the housing policy is in this city. I wonder mm-hmm. why there's so many people on the street. You know, that I think is like another sort of way of thinking that needs to be brought in, you know, to think about systems and so on. But I do believe you become a different person. And what's interesting for um, a lot of people is that they don't even notice it right away. It's their family or someone else's says, hmm. Well, you're better, you know, <laughs> like.
1: Yeah, I remember after my first retreat in 2003, I called my wife, and she says that just as soon as she heard my voice, just the tone of my voice, before I had even actually set, finished the sentence, she preferred the new me to the old me.
0: <laughs>
1: um, I'm not sure that lasted to the extent that she would have liked, but we, we, uh, uh, so I've been back for more retreats. Speaking of which, just, uh, you're, you're actually at IMS right now, right? And, and. I'm in my house next door, yeah. And there are, and you're not doing actual in-person retreats now, right? You're, you're Mm-mm. doing some, some virtual retreats. Yeah. we we've, uh, gone online. I
0: mean, as soon as I started reading further, since I'm now an epidemiologist, <laughs> you know, Aren't we all? I, yeah. um, as soon as I started reading further and, and, you know, the, uh, main source of infection seemed to be indoor spaces with poor ventilation, congregate, you know, groups. I thought that's like the
1: definition of a meditation hall. What do you know? Although, in my first retreat there, there was no air conditioning, so the windows were open. We we won't get into any internal uh, <laughs> disputes over which system was better, but there were, uh, in any event, you might you might think about returning to that system when you do open. Oh up. no, totally, totally.
0: I mean, we're you know we're having it the place evaluated for mm-hmm. um, air filters. I mean. Everything, you know, we, we will be very careful. And our executive director has this phrase um, first to close and last to open. <laughs> you know, because we closed before it was mandated. Did and you? It was a very smart thing to do. Um, yeah. And we will open. I, you know, I feel confident in that. And I don't know when, but
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, it, we probably won't be
1: the first to open. You know, we'll be very cautious. Yeah. Well, I want to get on the list. I need a retreat. Um the uh so y- you know, your your subtitle, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves in the World, I would imagine that in the past you've spent um more time talking about healing ourselves. Not not that not that you've left out the world part. Mm-hmm. But the, but one of the main things that's that's new about this book is the emphasis on healing. The world, but you are seeing them as very much related, right? Uh what
0: Yeah, I mean, in both directions. You know, I I think for meditators, uh people who have come to some greater place of inner well-being, part of the way they would like to express that is through taking action in the world. And we don't always know how. You know, we feel insufficient, like what we can do is never enough or – um, we get lost in those spirals of anger. You know, anger is a very interesting emotion mm-hmm. because it's so useful to have that energy. And it can be so devastating to just dwell in it endlessly, you know. Right. And so uh, learning how to navigate that or I have a chapter in the book on moving from grief to resilience. Um, you know, there's a lot one encounters in an effort to make a difference, as you well know. Mm-hmm. And the other way around, too, like I I know a lot of activists. I interviewed a bunch of them for the book. Um, They're not all formal meditators, but they all have a tremendous value system. And they all have some understanding that uh you've got to have some balance there. You know, you can't just endlessly give and never, like, take a break,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, or get some perspective on things
1: yeah there's um there's a line from Lynn Manuel Mirandis in the book uh something about how you can't dwell on all the tragedies tragedies in the world you I forget how he puts it, but you have to be selective, but then the ones you choose you need to you know to do justice to in a sense you know be selective about the tragedies you're gonna deal with and then and then focus intensely on them right and 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 this is a challenge for a lot of people, right just it seems you know if you add up all the things that seem wrong with the world right now or all the suffering in the world, it just seems like uh almost intimidatingly large mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well it is it's overwhelming and I can't remember exactly how he said
0: it, but being Lynn manuel he said it better than I'm about to say it, <laughs> you know, but it, it, it is something just like you were describing that you don't let everything into your heart because your heart will just basically explode. But even as you acknowledge the kind of the range, you know, we all have to dedicate our energy in some direction and and really focus.
1: Do Do you hear this a lot from people? Like, I just don't know where to start.
0: Yeah, I don't know where to start. I could never do enough, I, you know. Right. Um, I I I feel like so ineffectual and uh, things like that.
1: So can meditation help with these kinds of problems?
0: I think it can, you know, because I think, first of all, we get a clue as to what we're really feeling in the moment. And when our hesitation is coming from a, a very old pattern, maybe like that, we can see it for what it is and go forth. And And I think that something meditation has given me in an odd way is like devotion to the moment. Like instead of thinking I can't resolve climate change, I think I'll do nothing. You know, uh, we can feel the intensity of, of the suffering and say, I'm going to ask my elderly neighbor if I can go shopping for them, mm-hmm. you know, and actually do something toward the good which seems really crucial in this time.
1: Yeah. Um Yeah, I mean one of the one of the challenges is, is uh it, it, I mean it's so, it it's so tempting to tackle the biggest problems out there but the chances of you seeing um yourself making meaningful change on those fronts, you know, like who the next, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I guess p- p- part of your prescription is you can always just start small. If it seems, you know, something where you clearly see the impact you're having and, uh, and, and, and go from there. Yeah. I and mean, we have to do
0: what's in front of us because that's what's real. Mm-hmm. Everything else is like a story that we're telling. And it's also helpful to find a community, you know, of, of people. So you don't feel so, so kind of alone, but. You know, awareness gives us the gift of seeing the effect of our actions on us. And then we have clear opportunity for choice.
1: Mm -hmm. Do you, uh, do people come to you often, uh, asking how they can kind of cope with social media? Is that, is that a, this is a common question?
0: It's a very common question. I was uh, interviewed in the New York Times not too long ago. About uh doom scrolling. So yeah. I don't even know the term. I thought no, it was I only weird. heard that
1: a few weeks ago for the first time, yeah.
0: You know, and then the, the journalist said that one of my colleagues had recommended that he talk to me. So we did talk. And then when I saw the article, I saw she was not in there, but I was. And then I thought, I wonder why she recommended me. <laughs> you know, maybe she knows I do it and like she doesn't do it, you know, so I could speak from within because I do do it. Or I have done it and
1: now I don't do it so much anymore. Um, and, and you know, doom scrolling is just kind of like watching the re going through your Twitter feed, your, or whatever. Seeing more and more reasons for despair, and and yet being strangely addicted to it, right?
0: That's right. And then it's seeing the same story from like ninety different sources, or repeats, right. or retweets, or you know. And so it's just being
1: stuck in that world of some particular dire situation. Yeah. Um. One thing I see on social media, and this may uh bring us back to anger and this is not an original observation by any means but people reacting to things they object to perhaps more strongly than is going to be productive right i mean this seems to be almost the aside from the the uh coronavirus maybe kind of the epidemic of our of our time what do you uh i assume you've counseled people about this
0: well, I mean, I think, it you know, it goes back to that double-edged sword. It's like, you know, there's so much um that wakes us up about anger, and it can also have a lot of kind of cutting through energy. You know, everyone is so determined to look the other way, perhaps, and it's the angriest person in the room who's saying, no, let's look at that, you know? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so we kind of rely on that quite a lot. But internally, if you are consumed by that state, you know, even if the cause is, is sort of righteous, uh, it's devastating, you know, it, it wreaks so much damage on yourself and, and your relationships and, and so on. And I learned that from the activists, you know, that I got to interview uh, because that was their world, you know, and they would describe like the outrageous, horrible, terrible circumstance that got them going to begin with, and maybe woke them up out of a life of complacency into one of real caring and advocacy. And then this one woman, for example, Malika Dutt, who's in my my book, you know, I was talking about she's worked for decades against violence against women, and she talked about – she and I met just on a panel. We were put on a panel together somewhere. And in that panel, she talked about the horrible circumstance that sort of woke her up and made her – Uh, kind of fight and how important that outrage was and then she said but i don't know how to dial it down Mm -hmm. you know i don't know how to be otherwise and she said you can feel it in the organization it infiltrates all our communication and the backbiting and the ways we don't really work together and and so this was years ago you know and so i've watched her i've known her for years and i've watched her you know like become a meditator a shaman and you know like undertake all these things and she's still an effective uh advocate you know but it's it's coming from a different place yeah
1: yeah it is a tough uh balance i mean anger can be a great motivator Uh, is is it your view that that in general anger is always a good thing to kind of meditate on i mean it, it can't can't hurt to look at your anger more mindfully No,
0: I don't think it hurts. I think it helps a lot because then you're empowered by choice, you know, rather than um, being driven. My favorite definition of mindfulness used to be years ago from an article I read in the New York Times about one of the first mindfulness programs in a school. Uh, It was a fourth grade classroom in Oakland, California. And uh, the journalist asked one of the kids, who let's say he's in fourth grade, he's nine or ten years old. He asked him, what is mindfulness? What is mindfulness? And, and the kid said, mindfulness means not hitting someone in the mouth. That's <laughs> what mindfulness means. And I thought, what a great definition, because what yeah. does it imply? It knows you're feeling angry when you're starting to feel angry. Mm-hmm. Not after you've sent the email, not after you've lashed out at somebody And it also means a certain balanced relationship to the anger. So you're not consumed by it and defined by it. But you're also not hating it and ashamed of it, Mm -hmm. trying to repress it, because then you'll just get tighter and tighter and tighter and explode. Mm -hmm. So in that particular way of relating, some space is created. And in that space, maybe we see options, you know. Maybe the kid can think, hit someone in the mouth last week. Didn't work out that well. Let me try this, you know. Yeah. There's a, there's a kind of clarity that is dawned when, uh, we're not lost in it.
1: Yeah. Um, and it seems like, you know, we're in a political environment that's so polarized. And sometimes when you act on anger, you're actually doing the work of the, the what you see as your political adversary. I mean, it may, you may be in effect empowering people on the other side, saying things that they can then take. And, 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 you know, go to their supporters and say, see, these people are exactly the jerks I said they were. So,
0: yeah. I mean, I think we see that right now. We see it every day, you know?
1: Yeah. Now, I would assume, you know, at these retreats I've been on, um, I've, I've looked at the bumper stickers on the cars. And I think it's fair to say that, that they're not, um, it's not an overwhelmingly Republican crowd at, mm-hmm. at these meditation retreats, right? Um do you, I mean, how, how politically diverse is it? I mean, I, I would assume, in other words, I would assume the main kind of political problem you encounter in these times is people saying, how can I cope with Donald Trump? Mm-hmm. Uh, my first question is, do you, do you ever run into the, the other problem people on the other side uh, by virtue of Uh, you know, relatives or anybody asking you how they can cope with these obnoxious liberals, or is it am I right in assuming that mainly it's uh coping with Trump therapy is what you're called to do?
0: Uh, that's mostly what I'm called to do. I mean, (laughs) I think there may be more political diversity than we can imagine, you know. Um, but uh. People don't generally go around saying, you know, I feel discriminated against. Occasionally they do, you know. Yeah. Uh, especially when I was like teaching in New York, not necessarily in a retreat environment, but, um, no, I mean, I think, I think what's interesting and challenging for us is understanding the efficacy of having somebody perhaps. Uh, come to see things differently, say, you know, that they will vote differently now, um, especially if they were supporting Trump in the last election, without them feeling um, completely denigrated as a human being. You know, and I think it goes back to motivation in terms of, certainly in terms of communication, but really, what do we want as the result? Do we want someone to feel bad, or do we want a reconciliation or do we want a shift in view? Mm-hmm. Are we willing to shift, you know, our own view? Not, I don't mean, I'm not a moral relativist at all, you know, so I don't mean like, well, views are equal, but um are we willing to listen? Things like that. Cause I actually don't know, you know, like I, I was asking somebody when I was recording my own podcast who said something about people who were uh, furious at the slogan, black lives matter. And I said, what do you think they hear? I got very curious. I said, do they hear only Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. which would be something to discuss? Or do they hear even Black Lives Matter? And that's what's repugnant, because that's a whole other problem.
1: Mm-hmm. And I don't know. Well, I think some hear only only Black Lives Matter. Uh, and, and I think, you know, when when people, you know, even I remember when Bernie Sanders said, well, all lives matter. This was years ago. This was like, uh, years ago, but like three or four years ago. I, maybe it was in the last election cycle and, and, and the phrase wasn't as current, but he reacted by saying, well, all lives matter. And he got kind of chastised for it. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine a person being a little bewildered by being chastised for saying that all lives matter, which is, Something we all actually believe, right? And and yet, is and yet it is taken uh, on the other side as not recognizing that there are particular uh, there particular challenges to being to being black and and having justice done and so on. So it's very complicated, and and it has a certain amount to do with seeing perspectives uh, on the other side, or just seeing how people look at the world who are very different from you. Now, do you, do you find that um, meditation can help or, or any specific kind of guidance can help with, with that challenge of kind of, you know, just, just cognitive empathy, just kind of perspective taking and, and, and seeing uh, the points of view of people who are in very different circumstances from yours.
0: Well, I think it can. I mean that, uh, you know, they say uh, both mindfulness and loving kindness practice, affect implicit bias or unconscious bias because it's no longer unconscious, mm-hmm. you know, and I think we can see the assumptions we make about others much more readily. Um, I tell a story in the book. It's one of those like heavily disguised stories. So it always takes me a moment to think, how did I tell it about somebody um was a writer on a book tour and gave a lecture in some town and, and in the course of the lecture, talked about uh, Proust and how important that had been for his um, own understanding as a young man. And then after the lecture, he went out to dinner in this restaurant alone, and this group of people came in, and this woman, like, detached from the group and came toward him, and he took a look at her, and he thought, oh, she looks really, like, uneducated and kind of coarse, and she's probably not very smart. And then she said to him, I was at your lecture. Huh. So his heart sank. And then she said, but I have to say, I get so much more out of reading Proust in the original French. (laughs) You know, so, and like we do that all the time. And and it's one of the gifts of mindfulness to see, at least before you, you know, solidify it. It's not that Mm -hmm. all assumptions are wrong, but Mm -hmm. before we cleave onto it, you know, we might just
1: hold it for a moment in abeyance and check it out. So you mentioned these two kinds of meditation, mindfulness and loving kindness, and you, uh, have done a lot personally to expand awareness of loving kindness, mm-hmm. uh, meditation. I'm pretty sure that's the title of one of your books. In fact, uh, uh, you have a book called Loving Kindness, right? I do. That was my first book 25 okay. years ago. There you go. Oh, really? So this yeah. is like an, an anniversary, uh, yeah. time for celebration. Um, can you talk a little about the uh, first of all you might explain to people who aren't familiar with loving kindness meditation kind of how it works and what uh, and then and then talk a little about the the uses of the two kinds of meditation mm-hmm.
0: well mindfulness is really based on um coming closer to our experience in a balanced way so we can develop some insight you know that means uh back to anger for a moment instead of fixating on what we're angry about and what we're going to do about it and how we're going to make them sorry or whatever. We turn our attention to the feeling of anger itself. Like what is this? And we feel it in our bodies. We notice sort of the, the movie of anger. Like maybe we find a lot of sadness in the anger. Maybe we find a lot of fear in the anger. Almost certainly we will find a sense of helplessness in the anger. Um, In Tibetan Buddhism, they say anger is what we pick up when we feel weak because we think it's going to make us strong. And the energy of it is strong, but the constriction of it, you know, is not. And so we learn a lot about the nature of anger. We also see it's constantly changing. It's coming and going. And, you know, so uh, that's what mindfulness is, is intended to. We can be mindful of anything, not just those sweet spaces, you know, or whatever comes our way. Loving kindness meditation is almost more designed um, to experiment, to give us some alternatives in terms of how we're paying attention. If we think of ourselves, for example, and pretty well just run through for the billionth time our faults and our flaws, uh, we see what it's like to step out of that and wish ourselves well. And we think about all the people, We ignore, we discount, we objectify, not even through bias or or antipathy, but just indifference, you know. We look right through them. And the loving kindness meditation would have us consider them, like, may Mm -hmm. you be happy, may you be peaceful. Um, And so it it's like moving out of what may be a rut of attention, and I call it
1: the stretch, you know, it's stretching, Mm -hmm. like, just what's it like? Right. So, so typically with my, with, uh, loving kindness meditation, you kind of start out, as I recall, um, uh, trying to wish yourself well, trying to think good thoughts about yourself and, and, uh, and then you move on to successively more challenging cases, right? Then you, then, then I, then you might say, well, think of a loved one. And it's not hard to wish well for a loved one, to wish a loved one well, and to hope that they have good things, and 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 then you you might move on to a friend, then or, or a, at some point there's like benefactor, then there's somebody you know you know them, you don't feel strongly about them one way, and then eventually you get to like enemy or rival, right? And that mm-hmm. that's the way it works. And I and I have to say I have not personally discovered that I have a great natural talent for loving kindness. <laughs> I'm sure you've encountered this that you know. You got your your good loving kindness meditators and your and your bad ones. I think I run into trouble early on when I'm supposed to like wish myself well. I think maybe that's the challenge. But in any event, uh, I, I I can't um, can't say I'm great at it. But uh, a lot of people swear by it, and I'm wondering. Surely there are people who have reported to you trying to apply this to the current political situation, right? Like. Get to the point where they can see someone on the other side of the political divide, possibly even someone who's in the White House. I don't know, uh, but uh, ha- have have you? Is this happening? Are people and are people reporting good results? <laughs> um,
0: <clears throat> well, it's a very complex question. Uh, the kind of the sister quality to loving kindness is compassion. Loving kindness would be the. Um, Sense of understanding, it may not even be emotional, but it's a deep understanding that our lives are interconnected, that our lives have something to do with one another, Mm. and um, it's maybe most evocative with that neutral person, the person you don't especially like or Uh dislike, you know, where you suddenly realize, oh, like, I, I was just, I just had an experience also with my book where I was reading one of the meditations out loud for a journalist, they were recording it. And, uh, they chose this meditation on a neutral person, someone you don't especially like or just like, and you kind of, you may not know their name, but you, you get a sense of them and, and you repeat, you know, mm-hmm. silently, maybe happy, maybe safe, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably for th- 35 or 40 years, my colleagues and I have been saying, like the checkout person in the supermarket, that'd be the perfect person. We're totally indifferent to them. Usually we look right Mm -hmm. through them. And so I was reading this out loud and then I went, whoops, you know, like, look at that. You know, Mm -hmm. how do we think we get food and Mm -hmm. isn't it highlighted now? And, and so on. So, um, the sister quality is compassion, which is really a movement of the heart in recognizing pain or vulnerability or suffering. And, that I think is more accessible with people often that we have difficulty with. Um, and it also, it takes a deep, deep exploration of like, what does that mean? Does that mean you're weak? Does that mean you're passive? Does that mean you're giving in? And it doesn't have to. Mm-hmm. Um, your, your choice of action based on discernment or harm reduction or whatever might be really fierce. It certainly can be intense. I mean, like I have a, a passionate interest, to quote Limitola Miranda, you know, what I'm devoted to, uh, in voting and having people vote. You know, it's like, um, that I believe is the most important thing we could do right now is, is really, uh, engage in that. And for me, it's so reflective of the Buddha's view of the innate dignity of everybody. Like everybody has some worth, everybody mm-hmm. should have a voice. Um, but yes, you know, and, both in the teaching of loving kindness and compassion, they say, don't start with the most impossible person, you know, like make your way over there slowly because uh, there's a, there's almost an embodied understanding we get to like, what does it mean to have some compassion for this person and also resolve, I'm going to fight, you know, with everything I've got, or I'm going to have compassion for them and for me, things like that. And Mm -hmm. so, um, but yes it comes up all the time uh maybe it will lead to you know profound exploration of what compassion can mean
1: now i assume other people have uh experienced what i've experienced which is that kind of plain vanilla mindfulness meditation can uh lead you to a place of kind of equanimity and peace that itself makes compassion and loving kindness easier right i yeah. mean I, oh, I've, definitely. Had, yeah. I've had the experience on retreat um of you know suddenly thinking about a, a person who's really uh, uh you know a bitter enemy of mine <laughs> i mean you know to the extent that i have them i mean you know somebody you know there it happens and you know these you work with people you anyway uh things don't go well and and i just had a, a completely transformed uh relationship to them in in that moment and imagined them uh i i thought it wasn't hard to imagine some kinds of difficulties this person had probably encountered in adolescence you know it's like sometimes you can do a not bad job of guessing which per, you know i think adolescence tends to be traumatic for people and sometimes you can kind of figure out like what what part of the adolescent ecosystem they thrived in and what part they didn't thrive in like that guy wasn't a jock you know he was not picked first for basketball um and anyway i used these kinds of cues to kind of reconstruct uh and i'm sure it may not have been accurate my 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 sudden kind of theory about how this person had come to be a person who in some ways annoyed me but it was it was completely uh it was a completely different relationship to the person and, and, and understanding of them. And I, and I didn't get there by trying to get there. Mm-hmm. I just, uh, I had just been meditating for days and the person came up. Um, and it's kind of miraculous when it happens. It's not easy.
0: Yeah. No, it definitely happens. And, and I think it's, it's an important point to make. And, but even in loving kindness, you're not trying to get there in the sense of feel a certain thing or overlook. Right certain thing you're just experimenting like what if I look from this angle so for example somebody said to me once I was on a stage in Berkeley with lots of other teachers and and he raised his hand in the question period and he said you know I'm uh, having a lot of trouble having compassion for some of our political leaders he said you know like I know when I act badly it's coming from a place of pain but I look at them, and they don't look like they're suffering, you know. Mm. They look pretty self-satisfied. And, you know, I don't know how to get there. And there was, like, total silence from the stage, you know. Nobody wanted to answer them. So finally I answered him, And I said, I'm with you, you know. Like, I understand. Like, if some of these people could just fray at the edge of something, you know, it would be easier. But I said, but in reality, I consider myself my own laboratory. I am convinced they are coming from a place of pain even if they're not in touch with it and you know at my latest reflection is think about living a life so that if you if it was announced you had a terminal diagnosis a lot of people would rejoice uh-huh. you know think about those choices think about how disconnected and how small your life really is and uh how encumbered you know and i think these are not good choices these are this is a really painful state, even if you're not, you know, experiencing the piercing nature of the pain. It's, it's pretty, uh, low, you know, it's pretty small.
1: Yeah. And I think insecurity, uh, is a, is a pretty pervasive motivational force. And, and it's part of the nature of, uh, kind of trying to compensate for it that you act like you're not insecure right and that uh, uh but but surely i mean without naming any names of any current political leaders it's not hard to it's not hard to impute insecurity <clears throat> in some cases and you know there's there's relatedly just my general feeling that if i had been born in the shoes of whoever i'm looking at i would presumably be a whole lot like them i mean if i had been born with their genes into their environment um as hard as it is to imagine mm-hmm. i would be like them
0: yeah i think and, that's
1: true and uh, moreover we know about uh, biographical details of some some uh current political leaders and and uh and know that their their upbringing was a strange thing and and uh, you know so i don't know it's it's hard to do um but uh but i do think uh, i do think meditation can help? Do you think this is? I mean, how important do you think this is at this time in American history for people to look at I, whoever it is who's annoying them? It, it needn't be a major political figure; it could just be somebody on social media. Is it? Is it? A, is it a a central part of your message these days? Um, to try to have compassion specifically toward the other side of the political divide. Um. I think it's important for us to look at our motivation
0: and uh, I think that compassion could well be a part of it and it would be a lot healthier and engagement if it was. Um, and also compassion for ourselves, you know, that's where we need to strike a balance. It's like maybe I shouldn't be doom scrolling, you know, one more time or yeah. maybe I need to take a break or, or something like that. I think, I mean, compassion is really essential. And I think, uh, I mean, if I'm emphasizing anything, it's probably engagement, you know, like vote, 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 but, um, and help other people vote. But, uh, it, it can't come from a place of hatred because we'll just crash and burn, you know, it just can't. And so, mm-hmm. uh, we need to find the motivation that is going to be
1: healthier for us. Yeah. Um, are you, are you finding that more people these days, um, without any, any encouragement, are saying they want to go out and do things and change things? Oh, definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely, because, um,
0: you know, and we also can live in a dream world. And, you know, mindfulness helps a lot with that, not realizing that actions are consequential, that things we say, things we do really make a difference. And I think that has been a real awakening.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's the. um I mean, for me personally, one of the challenges is it's something you another uh, another Lin-Manuel Miranda line you quote is his saying, you know, you just have you have to accept that when you're trying to improve the world. You're like planting the seeds for a garden you'll never see. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the I mean, there are certain things you can choose to do where you do see the fruits. It's like you said, go help your neighbor do something. Uh, and maybe I should just do more of that. But my, my, I think my problem is that's not where I try to do things. And where I do try to do things, there's just no way of knowing whether you've done any good.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? Uh, there's little way of knowing, you
0: know, and, and it doesn't feel like the good is enough is the problem. Yeah. But I'm sure people must get back to you and say that conversation you had really helped me or your books really helped me or
1: it, it, It happens, but I guess maybe I'm, I'm, I'm asking, do we have to have a a certain kind of faith in the long-term productiveness of just certain kinds of actions and sentiments? And, right, I mean, are there certain, are there certain things we can do or certain ways of engaging with the world where we can just rest assured, look, you may not, who knows, you can't, follow the causality all the way out but uh, your faith your faith that you're doing good would be justified I think most things
0: are like that you know like we can see the consequences of our actions in that immediate personal sense mm-hmm. and it would help if we could see the consequences of our actions like I would love to have those people not wearing masks have a conversation six feet apart you know from an ambulance driver mm-hmm. um you know, or a volunteer in an emergency room, you know, something like that. I think that would be a really interesting thing to have a sense of cause and effect, you know. But for a lot of those sort of large scale things or, or systemic changes we might seek, we're, we're not going to see. I mean, it's not a linear process. You can't say, well, um, this person was elected president, therefore we have vanquished. You know, so many of the ills of society, it's just not like that. And, and so, uh, there's so much, so much in the teachings of the Buddha about where integrity lies, and it can't be in the immediate results of an action because so often we just don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we really are planting a seed and we look back at our motivation, we look back at the skill with which we've acted. Maybe we look back at that one person that, mm-hmm. We
1: helped, we know we helped, um, and we keep on going. And there are, in in the Buddhist text, just basic principles asserted like hatred and anger yield more hatred and anger, right? I mean, um, which you see in some other spiritual traditions as well, but that's ultimately, I I mean, you know, it's kind of like karma, not in the true profound, full-blown philosophical Spiritual sense, but karma just in the everyday understanding of kind of what you know, uh, what goes around comes around. I mean, I mean, you you do enough good things and 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 uh, with goodwill, and you can be confident that in the long run, you're making the world a better place.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, we we can be confident in that, and it's and it's. Um, it's the way we want to be living. You know, that's what really makes us happy and brings us together and, and not feel so kind of alone and, and cut
1: off. Hmm. Yeah. And, you know, you can if people work on social media. You actually can engage sometimes people on the other side of the fence in ways that wind up being gratifying. But you really have to surrender the desire to prove to them that they're wrong. You can just, just, mm-hmm. just give it up. Uh, just try to expand their awareness of your perspective and, and, and honestly try to come up with a better understanding of theirs. So are there, um, so you're just now starting to talk about the book, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. so are there other things you, you, uh, wish I had asked that I haven't asked? Are there other things you want to say? No, I think that was great i mean i actually
0: I wanted to ask you about uh negativity bias and ah. and and uh is that well, a, a truism and then uh well know, I think of the loving kindness or or gratitude practice something like that as a way of bringing more balance to that uh tendency uh
1: you mean uh that the tendency to just pay more attention to negative news, yeah. That's something that some people emphasize. I think Steve Pinker emphasized it. Uh I assume it's true. Um I I, I I don't know if it's as true as some people think. I, I, I think we also leap to, to embrace certain kinds of good news. Um I it, it's funny, it's not something that that figures Essentially in my worldview as uh I, I don't see it as, as as big a part of the whole problem as others do. I mean I wanted to thank you for in your book mentioning what what is I think one of my not favorite cognitive biases, but cognitive biases that I think most deserves emphasizing, which is this attribution error thing. Where once we've decided someone's the enemy, like someone on the other side of the political fence, if they do something bad we attribute that to their essential nature, like that's the kind of person they you know the bad people. If they do something good, we explain it away as, oh, they're just showing off, whatever. And, of course, we treat our allies and friends and loved ones the other way. They do something good, and we say it's part of their essential nature. I mean, that is something I would really encourage people to think about in terms of the way they're processing information. And I also think of that as a very kind of Buddhist uh, take-home. To, to remember that when you look at your enemies and they do something bad and you attribute it to their essence, yeah. the whole idea of thinking of essence of them is kind of in Buddhism, uh, considered a dubious way mm-hmm. to think about the world mm-hmm. generally. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, I, I guess, yeah, I mean, I guess, see, it's hard to say because I think, um, you know, in the current environment, I mean, headline writers, are so motivated if they want people to click on their headlines to, to say negative things about the other side. And, and that's a slightly different thing from negativity bias. I guess what I mean is once an environment is polarized the way ours is, then right-wing media gets clicks for saying that left-wing people are horrible and left-wing media gets clicks for saying that Trump and right-wing media are horrible. So I guess, I guess I'd say that's a bigger problem now than negativity bias per se mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, but maybe the hardest thing, maybe we should just get back to a thing you've mentioned and emphasize in the book, which is you know interdependence and interconnectedness mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's so hard for us to appreciate in the current environment that in the long run, our fates are intertwined mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and that's a Almost inherently a Buddhist kind of thought, right? Yeah, well, it is. And it's also, I mean, it's just
0: reality, you know? So, I mean, somebody sent me a quote of me from like uh, 10 years ago or something like that, which is always a very interesting moment. And uh, one of my favorite things to say all along has been um, that interdependence or interconnection is not just like a spiritual understanding. Economics shows us this. Environmental consciousness certainly shows us this. And even epidemiology shows us this. Oh. So I've been talking about epidemiology for like years and people used to say to me, "Why what does that word mean? Or why are you talking about that?" you know, and it was because of friends of mine, you know, who were epidemiologists in fact. So uh and here we are, you know, look yep. at this.
1: No, there's no more vivid illustration of how inter- interconnected we are in the in the modern world than how rapidly like bad news in china became bad news everywhere mm-hmm. um and and by the same token how you know good practices anywhere uh can help make things better for people even at great distances mm-hmm. so maybe we should uh close with with that thought that even if you don't see the garden uh that you're planting the seeds for you can rest assured that um the consequences of your action will be widespread yeah well, thank you so much for, for, uh, writing the book, Sharon. Um, real change. It's a time when people want that. Uh, and I, and I think by, by emphasizing the connection between change in yourself and change in the world, you've kind of isolated, uh, the key problem here. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you
0: so much for, for having me and for the conversation for all the work that you do.
1: Well, it's, uh, I mean, uh, you know, if I hadn't, uh, come your way you know i mean uh a couple of decades ago almost i don't know when i first met you but it was before i did my first retreat Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but anyway if you hadn't started that institution um uh i certainly i doubt i would have uh wound up evangelizing about uh buddhist philosophy and mindfulness Mm -hmm, meditation mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so uh so thank you for that and i hope uh i hope i'll be up there again when it when it opens. I'm sure you will. We're going to have the best air filtration system like known to mankind. (laughs) Okay. Well, then I'm willing to pay extra for that. All right. Well, thanks so much, Sharon. Great. Thank you.